is the first Sunday of Advent. And Advent traditionally has been observed uh, by the church as a time of waiting and anticipating the coming of Christ, the incarnation, the Christmas story. And that's really going to be the theme this uh, coming month. We're also going to be finishing the book of Romans today. And I think it's actually a good transition from Romans to the book of Matthew, which is what we're going to read through and study through Advent, but also beyond Advent, we're going to finish the entire book. And I think it is an appropriate way, because in many ways, when you read the book of Romans, it's, it's looking back. It's looking back on the work of Christ. And the gospel of Matthew is looking forward and then looking at the work of Christ, playing out in front of your eyes. And so everything, both Romans and Matthew, is centered upon Christ. It's centered upon God. And that's why when we look at these last few verses, we should look at the last three verses in chapter 16, verses 25 to 27, if you want to turn there. And these last three verses form what's called a a, a doxology. It's a doxology, which is a word of praise or a word of blessing to God. And that's different from a benediction. So usually we end our service with a benediction, which is a word of blessing, a good word from God to us. But a doxology is a good word, a word of blessing and thanks from us up to God. And these two things work together. The more that we bless God, the more that we thank God, the more that we see that he has done for us in Christ. And the more that we see that he has done for us in Christ, the more we thank God. And so we bless God, and then he blesses us, and then we bless him for the way that he blesses us, and it's this ongoing cycle of gratitude and blessing. So if we read Romans right, if we really get it, if, if this study in Romans did what it was supposed to do and we have received it rightly, we're going to end looking up. We're going to end with our eyes fixed on Christ. We're going to end blessing the God who blesses us. So with that in mind, I'm going to read Romans 16, the last three verses, verses 25 to 27. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray for our time in the Word together. Our Father, we pray that you would convict us with your Word, that you would comfort us with your Word, that our minds would be lifted upward toward you, and that as we hear the preaching of your Word, it would apply to direct areas of our life and help us to be conformed to your image. And we ask that your Spirit would do this according to your promises in Christ Jesus. Amen. A doxology is about gratitude. And gratitude is one of the most potent weapons in the Christian life. And I use the word weapons specifically because the Christian life is war. It is a war with the flesh, our own flesh, our own sin, the world, the devil. There are stakes. 
And the Christians in the church at Rome, which the Apostle Paul wrote to, this is the letter to the church at Rome, they understood this. This is a, a misfit group of people who were former Jews who have now converted and now they're being cast out by their own family and their own people for rejecting the faith of their fathers and following Christ. And you have also these pagan Gentiles who are being cast out of their own people and their own nation, and their own uh, uh, former religion, going from the worship of these pagan gods to the worship of the one true God. And so these are people out of place now being bound together by the Spirit of God. And they're facing pressure and they're facing persecution and they're facing difficulty. And Paul wants them to know this. And he says this in Romans 16, verse 20, that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. He wants them to know that the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet. That's a powerful phrase. The God of peace crushes. In other words, the God of peace is the one who fights on your behalf, who makes war for you. And you can trust him. In the midst of your difficulty, in the midst of the persecution, in the midst of the hardship, you have a God who is on your side. God is with us. So the confidence of a Christian is not merely that we say we're with God. The confidence of a Christian is that God is with us. Emmanuel, that's the promise of Christmas. God is with us. The God of peace fights for us. And that's a reason to be thankful. There are many, many reasons to bless God, to thank God. An infinite amount But because this is a sermon, I'm going to give you three. (laughs) Three reasons to bless God and to thank him. First, we bless God for his strength, the strength that he provides to his saints. Second, we bless God for his mission, what God is accomplishing in the world. And finally, we thank God and we bless him for his wisdom, the way in which God works in the world. Let's look at this first one. We bless God for his strength. You can see in verse 25, it begins, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. The strength that he gives is based on his good news, his gospel. And that good news, that gospel is about a person. It's the preaching of Jesus Christ. Preaching Christ is the center of the gospel. This, this means that when we, become, when we believe the gospel, the good news, it's not merely about how to you know, be relieved of a guilty conscience because God can forgive you. It's not merely about how you can raise good moral kids or how you can be personally transformed or how you can have hope in a dark world or even eternal life and living forever. Those are all blessings of the gospel, but it's not the ultimate gift because other religions can give that to you. Other religions can promise forgiveness. They can promise eternal life. They can promise good morals for your kids. But what Christianity offers uniquely is Christ. The great gift of the gospel is God himself. So why does God forgive you for your sins? So you can know him because you were made to know him. Why does he transform you and grow you in holiness? So that as you grow in holiness, you grow in your love for him. And what is the substance and joy of eternal life? It's to know Christ. 
It's to know God. It's to commune with Him, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So if you have forgiveness, life change, good morals, eternal life, you have all those things, but if you don't get God, if you don't get Christ, they're meaningless. The gift of the gospel is that God gifts Himself to us, and He is what we need the most. We need to know Him. We need to know and worship Him. Now, who is this God in whom we are to find joy? Who is this God who strengthens us? I want to read from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. This is a question for it. It's a great tool that Christians have used for centuries in discipling their kids and discipling one another. These are short questions and answers, and they're really, really great. They're, they're concise, and they're doctrinal, and they're really, really helpful, and I think a tool that we need to recover for the sake of our kids and for the sake of one another. But this is Westminster, the Shorter Catechism question four, talking about a, giving a definition of who is God or what is God. God is spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being. Wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. God is all wise, and we're going to cover that later. He's all powerful. He's holy. He's just. He's good. And he's truth. God never lies. And he's infinite in all of these attributes. Meaning that when he shows goodness, his goodness meter does not deplete. That giving grace to you does not detract from him. That loving you does not detract from him. He is a a wellspring of love and joy and peace and justice. And it never ends. And it never changes. God never wavers. God is not affected by us. We can't change his mind. He is always going to be pure justice, pure love, pure goodness, always and forever. The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob is our God. And that's what connects us to the Old Testament and to the New Testament. Different cultures, different situations, different peoples, all different language. Same God. That's the connecting link. Do you believe that? That right now in this moment, the God that Paul is worshiping, and the God who raised Christ from the dead, and the God who delivered Israel, and the God who performed all these miracles and did all these things is here right now in this moment, hearing the words that I'm saying, knowing the thoughts of your mind, knowing all the trials and the difficulties of your past week, knowing all the fears and anxieties that you have, knowing the depths of your sin that you feel so much shame over, that he is here right now dwelling in our midst, and he knows. And he is powerful and omnipotent and able to strengthen you. Now, if you know that, what do you need help with? Like right now. What do you need help with? He's here with us. And the essence of faith is not believing really hard so that something will be true. The essence of faith is looking away from self toward God. It's abandoning your own strength, your ability to fix it and to do it, and looking solely at God and His ability and all the things that He promises to us in Christ. And sin and idolatry is us curving ourselves inward. It's what the church fathers would talk about. It's fixing our eyes on ourself, our passions, our desires, our sin. 
But how do we find this strength? How do we turn away from self toward God, which is what we need? We must heed the preaching about Christ. He says, this is according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. It is through the word of God that he wakes us up, that he snaps us out of our stupor. He snaps us out of the days and the grip of our sin and the lies of the world onto us. And he speaks with clarity through his word to awaken us. Words communicate more than just content. They communicate presence. You ever hear about stories where there's someone, you know, a loved one who's in the, the hospital, they're, they're in a coma, and sometimes they'll respond or they'll wake up when they hear the voice of their spouse or a loved one. Now, why is that? It's because their words don't just communicate content, it communicates their presence. The one whom I love is by me. And God communicates his presence to us through his word. That when he speaks, he is speaking to us now, in the present, to strengthen us. And he receives glory when we ask him for help. Listen to Hosea 13, verse 4. It says, I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me. And besides me, there is no Savior. There is no Savior. In other words, God wants exclusive rights for helping us. He wants exclusive rights for being our Savior. He doesn't want us to run off to other things. But whatever we need, he wants us to find in him. But this is not automatic. You have to come and humbly hear the word of God. Romans chapter 6, Paul talks about how you need to present your members as instruments of righteousness. Present your mind, your heart. You have to come here going, Lord, I'm willing to submit to what you say. I'm willing to be helped by you. God is the willing one. We're the unwilling ones oftentimes. All the time, right? And so you have to come with a posture of saying, Lord, correct me. Lord, sanctify me. Lord, comfort me. Lord, I'm here. I want to hear you speak to me. The posture in which we come to worship is important. So here is God's voice to you today. This is from Hebrews 4.16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So is this a time of need for you? Do you need help? Do you need mercy? Well, God is speaking to you now saying, I have it for you right now in your time of need. What you need calculated down to the right decimal point, totally calibrated for you. And you need to come in confidence because you're in Christ. There's no condemnation. You come before the throne of the Father and you tell him what you need and you ask him. You ask him for what he promises to give to you. There's a story about Charles Spurgeon, this great Baptist preacher, prince of preachers. And this old lady came up to him after service and said, Pastor, does God only care about the big things in my life or does he care about the little things too, the little troubles in my life? And Spurgeon looked at her and said, my dear, everything in your life is little to God. Everything in your life is little to God. That all the big things that are so big for you that are overwhelming to God, he's not daunted by them. 
He's not afraid of them. He's all-powerful, and he's willing to help you. God is unchanging and infinite in power, justice, goodness, and truth. And this God has given up his only son out of love for you. How will he not give you all things? So, where do you need strength for? And by the way, when do you need strength? What does, what does asking for strength imply? That we're weak and that life is heavy. You don't reinforce buildings to avoid earthquakes. You reinforce them to endure them. And God strengthens us not by removing all the obstacles and trials in our life, but by strengthening us to meet them and helping us in our time of need. So we can bless God for the ways in which he will strengthen us, and we can ask him to do that in the midst of our trials. Second, we can bless God for his mission, not just for the strength he gives, but for the mission that he has given to us as the church and the ways in which he is working in the world to bring about his glorious purposes. When you became a Christian, you didn't merely invite Christ into your life, but really Christ brought you into his. You didn't just bring him into your story. Christ brought you into his story. One of my friends, she was uh, organizing a, a camp for youth, and she brought in a speaker, and she was asking the speaker, what verses are you going to preach on? And the speaker said, well, you know, I like to tell more personal stories from my life. You know, Jesus would tell stories from his life. And my friend, without missing a beat, said, well, could you just tell one of his stories then? And there's something to that. Where what we are focusing upon is that God himself is the author of history. He's telling a particular story, and that story is centered around his son, God in the flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says in Romans 16 that Jesus Christ is the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but through the prophetic writings has been made known to all the nations. And this is an unveiling of God's purposes in Jesus Christ. A revelation is divine disclosure. It's God piercing the veil into our world and showing us something that we could not know on our own. And Christ is the revelation of this mystery. Now, the word mystery does not mean completely unknown, as if Jesus was just a surprise event. But rather, it means a mystery is something that's veiled, that is present but veiled. So if you think about the Old Testament and the New Testament, the relationship is like a seed and a tree. A tree is both present and hidden in a seed. Everything about a tree is hidden in a seed, but it's not fully present. And when a seed reaches maturity, it blossoms into the tree that was always there, but was veiled and hidden. And Christ is the blossoming of the seed of the Old Testament. That he was present there, but veiled. And now that he has come, he has unveiled, he has blossomed, he has branched out into the glorious tree, what was promised in a seed in the Old Testament. That's why the book of Romans is filled to the brim with the Old Testament. 
You just really can't understand Romans unless you know the Old Testament, and Paul is steeped in it. Romans chapter 1 and 2 is about the judgment of sin and the issue of circumcision. Romans chapter 3 is about sin and the sacrificial system. Romans chapter 4 is about Abraham being the father of both Jews and Gentiles by faith. Romans 5 is about Adam and Christ, the book of Genesis. Romans 6 is about being freed from slavery to sin, out of bondage, into a new life. That's the book of Exodus. Romans chapter 8 is about how the Spirit of God leads God's redeemed people through suffering to a promised world, a promised land. That's the book of Numbers. Romans chapter 9 and 10 is about the rejection of the gospel and then the acceptance of the gospel by Israel, which is the entire book of Deuteronomy. In fact, Deuteronomy is quoted at length in Romans chapter 10. And then Romans chapter 11 is about the mystery of Israel's rejection and how it was planned by God and the purpose that it serves in God's plan in the world. And he quotes from the Psalms and he mentions David and he basically chronicles everything that's in First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings and all throughout the Old Prophets. So the architecture of the book of Romans is the Old Testament. And these are all seeds pointing toward the tree of Christ. These are all shadows leading to the substance of the Son of God. What does this tell us? That through all of history, despite the ups and downs and the confusing things that happen, God is in the driver's seat. God is in control. Paul says this in, in Galatians 3.8. It's a fascinating little phrase. He says, that the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. Paul says that Abraham, all the way back in Genesis 12, God goes to Abraham and says, I'm going to give you a family. I'm going to give you a seed. And through them, through your family, all the families of the world are going to be blessed. And Paul reads that, and he says, that was the gospel in seed form. That was pointing toward Christ. And in the New Testament, Christ gives us a great commission. He says, go out into the world as the family of God, as the church. Jesus is the true seed of Abraham, and we are the seed of Abraham by faith. Go out into the world and baptize the nations and teach them to obey. Bring about what Paul calls the obedience of faith. Teach the nations to obey Christ. This is not something new. This is a fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. This is God bringing to maturity what was the plan from the very beginning. And Paul's letter to Rome is playing a part in that. The book of Romans is... A fundraising letter. It's a church planning letter. Paul says in Romans 15, 25, he says, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I've enjoyed your company for a little while. Paul sees his mission as part of God's purpose in history to bring about his plan, a plan he enacted all the way back with Abraham. You could even argue all the way back to the garden to fill the earth with God's glory. Why does God tell Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply? Because he wants image bearers 
to multiply image bearers, to fill the world with the image of God, with the glory of God. And that continues today. And Paul's life was driven by the mission of God. And this means that glorifying God is not only about reflecting God, but refracting God's glory. Refracting is when light bounces off of glass onto something else. Maybe in high school, you had a little watch, you know, and the sun comes in and it bounces and you're distracted and you're trying to get the, you see the little reflection on the wall. Maybe you're trying to blind people with it. Maybe I'm the only person who did that. I mean, hypothetically, and not me, but someone else. And, but what's going on? It's light not just being reflected, it's refracting. It's, it's going and hitting a source and then going outward. And that's part of what we do. We don't just reflect God's glory back to him, but we refract it out into the world. So when God dwells among his people and we worship him, it spills out into families and neighborhoods and the ends of the earth. And worship of God begins to displace the worship of idols in our own hearts. And what is worked into us gets worked out into the world. So, worshiping God is not just something we do sectioned off today, but it encompasses all of our lives. It's not just something for you know, professional Christians like me or missionaries and all these kinds of things. No, you, you are part of this. And you represent God, and he will refract his glory through you. And we have this confidence that God's in the driver's seat. It's his mission, it's his idea, and we can bless him for it. And we can have confidence that he will use our lives in that way. So we bless God for the strength he gives us, also for the mission that he gives us and is accomplishing through us. And finally, we bless him for his wisdom. We bless God for his wisdom. Paul ends the book of Romans with this. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Paul says to the only wise God. That God is the source of wisdom. God not only determines what's going to happen, but he determines how it's going to happen and the way in which it should happen. That's the wisdom of God. I always want God to do things right now. You know, I'm just like, why not just fix everything right now? But you read the storyline of Scripture and you realize most of it is just waiting and long-suffering and enduring. And part of what allows us to wait in hope is trusting the wisdom of God. You know what you're doing. Even if I can't figure it out, especially when I can't figure it out, Lord, you're in control. It is your wisdom and your way that I'm going to submit to. 1 Peter 1, verses 10 to 12, he speaks about the prophets who foretold Christ. And he said that they had no idea when or how he would come because they were not serving themselves but us. The the, the prophets writing down their prophecies didn't fully see the picture that we see now, that they were waiting in hope. Lord, I don't know exactly how this is going to be fulfilled, but it will somehow. And I'm writing this, and it's for future generations to look at and go, look at what God did. So what they wrote in hope, we now see in Christ. And we also have that hope, that we have to trust God's timing in the way that he works in our lives and in the world. In Galatians 4.4, it says that God sent his son at the fullness of time, not a second late, not a second early, at the right, correct moment in history, God unveiled his glorious purpose in 
Christ by his command. God is wise in the way that he orders the world, the way that he orders history, the way that he is working in us. But waiting is not the same thing as inaction. Scripture is not merely something we read, it's something that we live. Most of the time, we, when we look at Scripture, we, we kind of look at it like it's like this play unfolding in front of us. I'm like, oh, that's an interesting play. And look at that thing that happened. And I could take that and write down a little note there. But in reality, we're part of the play. We're on the stage. And the Scripture gives us the lines and the direction on how we are to live. Remember, it's the same God. We are the people of God living now. And what is true of Romans is true of us. This is why reading large portions of Scripture is so key. In fact, this Advent season, read Romans straight through in one sitting. It'll change you. Because that's how it was meant to be read. Right? You wouldn't listen to a piece of music and be like, this week we're just going to listen to the first three seconds. Think about it. And then we'll listen to the chorus. And then, now, that's important, but man, you've got to listen to the whole song at some point. And a church that is steeped in reading large portions of Scripture and seeing the whole song is a church that will see the wisdom of God and will live it out in their lives. You have a part to play no matter what stage of life you're in, whether you're single, you're married, you have kids, you don't have kids, you're empty nesters, you're retired, whatever it is, you have a part to play. And you can find yourself in that as you read the Scriptures. But this is going to be difficult. The wisdom of God is foolishness to the world. And this is important to recognize. God calls Noah to build an ark. He's a fool. Abraham is going to have a son in his old age with a barren wife. Moses can defy an empire. Israel can defeat Assyria or make it through Babylon. Can a baby boy in Bethlehem really change the world? Yes, yes, but it's foolishness to the world. I think this is going to become increasingly difficult today when I think our culture, it's not just neutral saying, you can believe what you believe, I'll believe what I believe, but that what you believe is fundamentally violent to me. That there's going to be an increasing hostility toward Christianity. Carl Truman writes this. He's a uh, professor at Grove City College. He's a great cultural commentator. He said, being mocked for believing in miracles is much easier to handle than being hated as a bigot. And part of submitting to God's wisdom is, what does God say about sexuality and gender? With clarity. And we have to submit to it. And if people don't like us, we take it. What does the scripture speak to us in our cultural moment. And it's true, I feel that. It's much easier to be like, yeah, I believe a guy rose from the dead and you might get some weird looks, but if you affirm traditional marriage between a man and a woman, if you speak about gender the way the scripture speaks about gender, you're going to lose friends. It's going to be very difficult. But is God wise or not? Does he know better than you? And that's, man, that's a fundamental question for anything in the Christian life. Believing that God knows better than you. 
And it's that posture that we have to have to trust him, to believe him at his word. But you can only see this with the eyes of faith. This is what's so hard, but I think so necessary. There's a story in 1 Kings. I forget where it is. I just, just trust me, it's in there. And Elisha the prophet is standing there, and he's facing against a Syrian army, this massive superpower, and he's with his servant. And he's terrified because they're so overwhelming. How are we going to win? And Elisha turns to his servant, and he, and he starts praying. And he says, Lord, open their eyes that they may see. And the servant looks on the mountain, and it's filled with chariots of fire and an army. And he realizes, oh, you know what? God's with us. But you can only see that with the eyes of faith. What do you see when you come to church? We got these weird pink windows, one bathroom. <laughs> this is what the Lord sees. Hebrews 13 talks about the church as Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem surrounded by angels and saints, cleansed by the blood of Christ. That's what's really happening. And maybe your friend is like, oh, I'm thinking about checking out church. And maybe you tell them, we got a cool band and preaching's okay and, you know, got great people. And that's true and that's wonderful. But man, maybe you should tell them, you want to come to the heavenly Jerusalem with me? You want to come before the throne of God? Do you want to know where God is and where he meets people and where he powerfully dwells in your midst and hears the prayers of his people? Come to this church. Come to church in general. Not just obviously our church, but gathering together as the saints of God. Such an ordinary thing. We're just regular people. And yet, that's how God works. There's a reason not to skip church. You think about one of the powerful things is, is when the church prays. The prophetic power of prayer, when the church gathers and prays, that, that's just what set the book of Acts on fire. And we've, we're losing that, and we need to pray together. Because what are we doing when we, call, when we pray? We're, we're calling God to act on behalf of his people. That's a powerful thing. But you know what else is the wisdom of God? The way the church acts toward one another. You look at the end of the book of Romans, and he's saying in chapter 12, renew your minds with the word of God and offer up your bodies as a living sacrifice and serve one another. Owe one another love in chapter 13 and pay your taxes, right? Don't judge or despise one another in pettiness. Don't despise each other in chapter 14 and glorify God as Jews and Gentiles with one voice, chapter 15. That's the wisdom of God how we live together, how we love one another. One of the things I love is this doxology comes at the end of a list of all of Paul's friends. All these people that he bled with, he ate with, he shared prison cells with, he ministered the gospel with, all this list of people whom he loves. And the gospel is this common bond and this mission that brings us together. And that intimacy and that friendship is the byproduct of that common pursuit. It's not holiday sentimentality. This is the wisdom of God playing itself out. I think it's one of the great gifts. Man, friendship. You look around and you're like, we're friends. We 
belong together. God has knit us together. And that's why Paul is so, he says, fight the people who make division in the church. Do not destroy the bond of peace. This is the wisdom of God. So we bless God for his strength, and we ask that he continues to do so. We bless him for his mission as we fill ourselves with Scripture that we might play our part, and we bless his wisdom. You know better than us, Lord. We submit to you. And we know that when we glorify God, we're glorifying the God who will one day raise us up as sons of glory. That's Romans 8. We are never more glorious ourselves than when we are glorifying God because he made us to be that way. When he calls us to worship him, he's simply asking us to be who he created us to be. So this Advent season, let's fix our eyes on Christ. Amidst all the chaos and the madness of our personal lives and the world and all the things, fix your eyes upon Christ. Whatever obscures your vision, throw it out. Cast it aside. Look on Christ, the God of peace who fights on our behalf. I, I meet with people, I talk with people, and oftentimes as a pastor, I, just, I can't fix, I don't have all the answers, I can't fix all the complicated things in people's lives, but I find comfort in knowing that really all I'm trying to do, and really what we're trying to do to one another, is point us to the great physician, to the one who actually can help us, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're just pointing each other to the very throne of grace that we have to go to for help. And that's what I want for you, to come before the throne of grace, to look upon Christ, to trust him, and to know that God is with us this season and for all of our lives. Lord, open our eyes that we may see.